From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous uh, Friday. I started to say Tuesday. I actually said Monday and... How that hap- how that relates to Friday, I have no idea. It's you, Colin. Every time you're in the studio, I don't know what day it is. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. If you would like to listen to people smarter than me, anybody call right now, and you will fit that <laughs> bill right now at 833-288-3986. It is Open Line Friday. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house and he would love to take your phone call at 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, I'm quite confident that you're still smarter than me, and we would love for you to call us at well, Especially one, from Canada. That's right. You 1-205-271-2985, and we'll put you straight to the line at 1-205-271-2985. And... Um, if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that as well, openline at EWTN.com. They may be smarter than me, but they're not as free as me, at least not today. We'll see where things Where we go up. from here, yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good, actually. Um Got a uh, an email here from Kurt, and he wants to know why did the early church fathers like Saint Jerome believe that the Septuagint is not inspired? Well, the tradition that it was inspired uh, comes from the um, from the Jewish fathers, as it were, uh, from the Jewish rabbis uh, and the tradition of Alexandria, uh, not from the Christian uh, tradition. Uh, so. The Septuagint then represents a human translation and is no more capable of being inspired than, say, the King James Version. As uh, you know, uh, perhaps some Protestants believe it's the only legitimate translation into English, or the Revised Standard Version, or any of, of the English language versions, or Italian, or Spanish, or any kind. So, what the standard is, as spoken by as originally written by the prophet, by, you know, Moses, uh, and the same thing goes for the New Testament. That's why there are always two levels to the interpretation and the understanding of the scriptures and why an authority is needed, because the text itself as we have it today is not necessarily, uh, you know, precisely in every single detail what was revealed in the Old Covenant revealed in the New. The first lever, level is textual criticism. The New Testament, for example, and uh, certainly the Old, uh, is a collection of different writings that are sent around, circulated in the Mediterranean region, in the case of the New Testament, uh, as an example of both Testaments. And in that process, finally brought together into a volume. 
what is canonical is, of course, the, the, the original writing, the original teaching of the apostolic authority, uh, which we certainly believe, as we look at historical copies, is largely to be found in our current Greek with regard to the New Testament and Hebrew. There's some Chaldee in the Old, in the Old Testament as well. Uh, and so the original language text versions are what are the uh, inspired text. And the role of the textual criticism is to get as close to those, and that involves somewhat of an archaeological exercise in that as more ancient manuscripts and sources are discovered, what they do is they go back and they compare what we have today with, say, what something in the 4th century or the 3rd century. The Dead Sea Scrolls were great in substantiating the, uh, the fact that the text which handed down uh, through the Masoretes uh, down to the 9th century A.D. of the Hebrew text was very, uh, very close to what was being promulgated in the 1st century B.C. and 1st century A.D. So that gives us great confidence in our modern text, and likewise with the Greek. And so when you see footnotes in different translations about different readings say this or say that, they're referring to this level of textual criticism where we may have a text from Egypt, we may have a text from Syria, we may have a Latin text from Italy, you know, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, and there are minor differences among them, and it's the job of the scholars to get that which is closest to the source. That requires an academic authority. That requires data and information. Interpretation, then, is what God's intention is in inspiring those. That authority resides with the church, and it has to reside with something outside the text because, as scholars understand, and as I've just explained, this text itself is not self-authenticating the, uh, the exact language. So we know that the texts are, are, are good, that they're solid, uh, that they're confirmed by discovery of other texts of the period and other, uh, even older sometimes. But in the end, you still need to interpret and understand the meaning of that text as God willed it. And that's the task given to the church and given by Christ to the apostles when he told them to go forth and teach the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you until the end of the end of the age. And that's what the role of the church is, to continue that mission, to do that authenticating of teaching, and therefore necessarily of the Bible. And the church fulfilled that role in the first century by establishing the very first Christian canon of Scripture, which is the same one held by the Catholic Church today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Um, here's a timely email that came in a couple weeks ago. Nancy wants to know, what does it mean that Mary was free from original sin? Yeah, yesterday's feast day, the Immaculate Conception, meaning that at the moment of her conception, uh, by the will of God and by the foreseen merits of her son, Jesus Christ, in other words, not because of anything that she could have done, she wasn't yet conceived. And in that moment of her conception, the human body and soul was given. In the same way, we would say that with Adam and Eve were created in a way that, in addition to the body, there was the soul, 
and it had did not have concupiscence. It did not have the frailty of disposition towards sin that we are conceived in. And so it's this defect, if you will, God intending that with each human being that comes into existence, body, soul, and spirit, that we would have the divine life within us, the life of grace. We would have our human elements of the body and soul in that one substance of our human nature. And the two would be together. Adam and Eve, sad to say, broke the chain at the beginning. And that broken link continues to today. And that's what was meant by original sin. It means that the spiritual elements, the intellectual elements of man, his ability to see and understand the truth, that positive intellectual activity of seeing what's before you and deciding what it means, understanding it, and then acting on it. That's the will activity, the ability to act consistent with the truth that the intellect sees, to do the good that the mind tells us, our intellect tells us what we ought to do. Each of us is conceived with a disunity in that. That's the original sin. It's a penalty in that respect, in that Adam and Eve could have won it for everybody who came after them, but in their actual case, they lost it for everybody. The sole exception is Our Lady who is conceived without sin. In other words, in the instant of her conception, the divine life was put into her as it had been with Adam and Eve. It was put into her, and she preserved that by the grace of God and her own cooperation, precisely because she was to be the mother of the Redeemer. And that's one of the reasons the church says, by the foreseen merits of Christ. She couldn't have been uh, by any merits of hers. And so we see it as a completely gratuitous gift of God that she was full of charity, as the Gospel of Luke tells us. I wasn't in the garden. Why should I get punished? Well, you know, if your parents are, are alcoholics or thieves and have evil dispositions, the children have them. It's a law of nature, isn't it, that we learn by socialization. We also learn by, uh, by the example of others, and we also receive the flesh of others from our parents. Uh, and so uh, that's why it goes on, goes on to us. And there's that beautiful text of the Easter liturgy, the Exalted. And that is, O happy fault, O necessary sin of Adam, which gained for us so great a Redeemer. We are actually better off in terms of what we are capable of becoming if we adhere to Christ, of course, because of Jesus Christ. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Father Joseph's Advent and Christmas Reflections and free ebook will help you uh, become closer to the infant Jesus and his blessed mother in the days leading to the celebration of the Nativity. 
And we'd like to invite you to sign up to receive weekly emails from Father Joseph's Advent and Christmas Reflections. And in addition, we'd like to send you a beautiful free ebook, including all of the reflections. Simply visit EWTN.com slash Advent today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. First up today is Mark in the Commonwealth of Kentucky listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Mark, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello, Colin. Can you hear me all right? I sure can. What's your question, buddy? Very well. You know, I have no formal education in theology, but it's kind of a hobby of mine. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I have come into possession of a green booklet entitled Daily Prayers to Save America, subtitled The Mantle of Mary Project. It has uh, a Reverend John Anthony Boughton, CFR, and Bud McFarland, Jr. as authors of this particular pamphlet. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about the Mary Foundation, nor particularly about these individuals, but the core of this little pamphlet is calls for uh, reciting a rosary, the uh, litany of the precious blood, and a divine mercy chaplet, mm-hmm. along with some additional prayers and a, a history and so forth of this Mary Foundation. And I'm just calling to try to get some intel mm-hmm. on this particular publication and its use. Sure. Although it says it's not uh, been in, been given an imprimatur, I don't see anything that's theologically off-skew on it. And I was wondering what your opinion was on the whole thing. Yeah, I, I know pretty much what you just told me. Um, you're quite right. The, the prayers that are suggested, there's nothing wrong with them. Um, Saving America did not. Our Our Lady at Fatima came to save all of us from, I think, what we're going through right now in the world. And likewise, the Divine Mercy, uh, the example of St. Faustina, uh, is clearly uh, directed at saving the world from the, the, the wars and the other things which are the result of our sinfulness. Again, there's if you're looking at the the coin of Fatima, the flip side is the divine mercy. If you're looking at the coin of divine mercy, the flip side is Fatima. So you can't go wrong with those prayers, whether they're uttered to uh, save America according to the program of some foundation or our uh, Blue Army, uh, the apostolate of the Blue Army, which is uh, uh, specifically the, the Fatima-oriented apostolate. Uh, there are a number of apostolates out there that are promoting, you know, different, I would say, the same major elements, but maybe in a different fashion with a different flavor, if you will. And each of us is free to, to, you know, choose which one we want to associate with or not, because we, are, we have the originals. We have Fatima. We have uh, Faustina that we can uh, uh, simply do those practices. So, I like you said, I see nothing wrong uh, theologically with the practices and the ju- suggestion of them. In fact, I do the very same. I don't specifically mention the precious the litany of the precious blood, but um, I think any of the Catholic litanies, any of the Catholic prayers, uh, if we're trying to, those are the two big ones, the rosary and the divine mercy chaplet, in my opinion, 
uh, those are a good centerpiece uh, of any effort to save our, our planet and our, and our nation. Does that help, Mark? Uh, yes, it does. I, I presume that you would not have any particular problem with this uh, auxilium Christianorum. Help of Christians? Our that's, that's, our, that's a title of Our Lady. Yeah, Help of Christians. Yeah, our, it's a title of Our Lady that's usually associated with St. John Bosco. Thanks, Mark. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Robert. He is in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Robert, you're on with Colin Donovan. I have heard a couple things on Catholic Radio I'd like to try to reconcile with each other. Uh, The first thing was that uh, a person cannot be considered good unless he's capable of evil and using his will to be good. The other thing that I want to try to reconcile it with is I heard that God can be nothing but good. Right, yeah. Well, humanly, we're, we have principles and change in that. That's our emotions, our feelings. So a good person, a person who you generally, oh, they're a good person or whatever, they still have the possibility of, of choosing not to be good. Uh, because we are limited by what we know, or as, I, as I just was mentioning to Mark, uh, knowledge and uh, will are the two distinguishing features of man's intellectual or spiritual nature. Uh, these are images of God in their, the, the fact of them, not images of God in the infallibility of them or the consistency of them, however, and that's where we get into a lot of trouble. Uh, God, who is is the simply the principle of good, uh, we, that's why St. John tells us God is love. So God being the principle of good and God having, you might say, the infinitely perfect and freest will of them all, will not choose evil, but only the good which he himself is. Uh, So in that sense, you would say, you know, it's not chasing the tail so much as an absolute consistency between the knowledge of God, which is infinite and true, and the will of God, which is infinite and good. The angels could have had something similar because the angels don't have the principle of change in them, matter, feelings. The good angels accepted what God, the plan God had. They were tested by a plan, as we are, God's plan of our uh, perfection and restoration to him. And they chose, the good angels chose, and having chosen, there is in them no possibility of going back. But yet they freely do it because they made that initial choice and they are pointed in that direction. Uh, I, I think an analogy at the human level might be the love of a husband for his wife. Um, granted, there are, are husbands who you can't say this of sometimes, but uh, husbands who really love their wives, you know, it's, it's simply a factual matter. They're incapable of doing anything other than loving them, you, we wouldn't, yet we wouldn't say they're not free. 
The saints, at the level of holiness, they get to where they have consistently chosen the good and only the good get to the point where it would be, we would say, maybe psychologically impossible for them humanly to choose the evil. But it's not because their will is not free. It's because they love the good that they know in God or the man who loves the good that he sees in his spouse and he just loves her. It would be contrary to his own nature to do the opposite. So that's how I think maybe on a human level it understands it, at least in our own case, and maybe gives us a glimmer of the divine level as well. And I think that's why God uses in both the Old Covenant, and we certainly see it in the New as well, especially in the book of Revelation, John the Apostle writing there, this image of the bride, that the bridegroom and the bride that you see in the Song of Songs and some of the other uh, Old Testament books where God speaks of Israel as his bride. I think that's because that's, an under, that's a language we understand. We can understand this language of love which is so dedicated that it can't choose anything else, and yet it does so freely. And I think that's a good way of understanding it. Thanks, Robert. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Michael is watching us on YouTube, and he wants to know, he says, I would like Colin Donovan's opinion regarding the New American Bible. Why is it used at Mass in the United States, while other country uh, English-speaking countries use a different translation, and whether there should be a common translation for all English-speaking countries? Well, um, you know, I think the English would put the death knell to that because we're not, we would be accused of not speaking English. In fact, I think Americans are accused of that. So the, the idea that there is one English that all languages speak uh, is not even true. And I discovered interest because we're, we're sort of interested in, in uh, the things from the islands, you know, as they say, the people who come from those islands. And in England alone, there are like a ter terrible number of dialects. You see this in My Fair Lady, where he's trying to teach uh, a gal who speaks Cockney to speak like, you know, the Queen's English. or the, mm -hmm. It would have been a queen, I think, at that time, or maybe the king. And so it's just not possible. And language is a way of conveying ideas, and so it has to somewhat, it has to be conformed to the character of the particular audience, whether it's American or or British, British Commonwealth. So you'll find that in a couple of areas, whether it's in the sacramental area or in the Liturgy of the Hours, you know, that you're more likely to find that Canada, England, and the other Commonwealth nations are using a, a particular English translation, whereas the United States has gone its own way. So that's, that's the reason that we use uh, a variation of the NAB. It's the... I think a lot of people have criticized the NAB over the years, especially some of the footnotes that seem to be a little bit dingy at times. Uh, it's gotten better and better and better. Rome has uh, intervened in some translations of, of scriptural texts, obviously, to make sure there's an uh, authentic English language there and one that is not including an, uh, an effort to conform to the culture, like in uh, the, you know, the, the whole issue over inclusive language. You, you, you can't get away from the fact that Christ became uh, man, meaning human, and man, meaning male. Two different senses of the word. And if you make it a generic 
you know, human being or something like that. It doesn't really tell us as much information. And so the church was careful about that. And I think the, uh, the NAB um, does a better job of that than perhaps it did initially. So that's, that's basically, in a nutshell, why we use the NAB. It's produced in the United States. It's been corrected a couple times. Um, it's been accepted as the liturgical text for our, our lectionaries. And in Canada and elsewhere, they use uh, different versions. I think Canada uses a variation of the New Revised Standard Version, or one of the different one, I think, actually. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Big shout-out to our good friends at St. Jude Catholic Church in Mansfield, Texas. They operate radio station KYRE, and they are celebrating eight years as an EWTN radio affiliate, congratulations from all of us here at EWTN Radio. John is watching us on Facebook Live, and he wants to know if God created evil. He said in Isaiah 45, 7, it says, I form the light and created darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. I suppose in some senses, like everything is the will of God. We say that it's the will of God because he doesn't... Uh, you know, if somebody is about to do evil, he doesn't snap them out of existence. He tolerates evil that good may come of it. And so I think in that sense, you can understand it that way. And I think and there's the, a wild variation in English translations. For right. Translation yeah, I, I would and I would want to see what the possible variations are and do a, a deeper study of the text. But a lot of those kinds of issues are resolved by understanding uh, that uh he tolerates the freedom of cre his creatures to do evil uh, because having given them life and giving them the choice, he doesn't take it back. But at the same time, he will punish it, and he'll even punish it eternally. Uh, so without deeper study of that text, I suspect there's some, and, or, and the language variations among the different translations, yeah, something there like are, that. There are, I mean, it, the, the word evil is translated in a variety of different ways from evil to bad times to uh, troubles. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so all kinds of different disasters. Well, and, and there is a way, yeah, I was about to say, you can distinguish between material evils and moral evils right. and, and spiritual evils. And I think in that sense... Simply by creating, we look at the, the, the havoc that the fallen angels try to bring into not just the into the human world, but into the physical universe before we even populated the planet. You know, and, and that's that's, not, those yeah. are material evils. And that's not even getting into the, the reality that evil really is not even an entity in and of itself. Right. It's, it's just an absence of the good that ought to be there. Right. It is, as Aquinas uh, says, it is a deficiency of the, per of the perfect. 
And so even sins become, uh, when we speak of venial sins, for example, it's, it's uh, defects in the good act, defect of will or intention or knowledge, which means to an Im- leads to an imperfection of act. Uh, and so in that way, it is an evil in a, you know, a, a sort of a apostrophe kind of sense, but uh, not in a real sense. Yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Barron wants to know if he and his wife can switch rights within the Catholic Church. Is your If your wife is of a different right or you are a different right, the non-spouse of that right could switch. It becomes more difficult outside of those contexts uh, the reason being that we're baptized into a particular rite. And that's quite different. The rite you belong to is quite different from the rite that you may attend because of some choice or circumstance. So a Catholic can attend the, the liturgies of any of the Catholic rites, uh, receive a certain, certain of the sacraments of any of the Catholic rites, by, certainly by necessity. More commonly, we think of the Eucharist and Confession, uh, but in case of need uh, of, the, of the sacraments of the sick, uh, the holy orders, of course, is given by the bishops uh, of the rite, uh, typically that uh, that person belongs to, or of an equivalent rite. I think sometimes Eastern bishops of one rite will ordain for for uh, churches of, of another Eastern rite sometimes. Uh, so there are a lot of rules surrounding that. Uh, but once you're baptized into, you're generally confirmed in. And for most of those things, again, there are also exceptions. Uh, changing a rite is more difficult. Uh, and that requires ultimately the agreement, historically anyway, of the, of the bishop of the uh, a bishop of a diocese or eparchy of the rite you wish to go into, as well as the, le- you know, the leave to do that from your own bishop of the Latin rite. And then Rome ultimately decides. At least those have been the have been the rules I'm familiar with, unless they've changed. And I think uh, even in cases where that does happen, it's a one-time only situation. Yeah, you lifetime. can't go you can't go back and forth. Now there has been in the past a much stronger stand on this, and part of the reason was when back in the bad old days, men wanted to flee to the Eastern rites to be ordained priests. Uh, or thinking, well, I can't get married in the Latin rite, and I'm going to go to an Eastern rite. So in North America, generally, you you couldn't do that at all because even in North America, you if you you couldn't uh, be married in in many of those rites, not in all of them, but in many of them. Yeah. And, and but but even even that 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 issue or necessity has has uh, gone away, and in fact. Um, Married clergy of the rights of the Eastern rights are now possible in the United States. Uh, so the great difficulty there for anyone wanting to do that is making the change of right. And uh, I, I would say it's very seldom granted when there aren't when the conditions of the codes of canon law, the two codes, Latin and Eastern, are not met regarding the, the parentage and, and and things like that, which generally go into those questions. Yeah, and just a little anecdotal confirmation of, of what you've said there. Uh, I'm familiar with a family who uh, resides in a part of the country where uh, the churches were pretty much shut down. The mm-hmm. Latin churches were shut down during the pandemic. Uh, 
and there was a Maronite church that was open in the area that remained open. And they started attending this church. They felt very welcomed at this church. And as mm-hmm. things started to subside, um, they remained at this church. They had one child who had already been confirmed. Um, mm-hmm. The others had been baptized, and they had a new infant who was going to be baptized and confirmed at the Maronite liturgy. And so they asked, well, can the rest of our children who have not been confirmed, who were you know younger mm-hmm. than the age that we confirm in the Latin rite, could they be confirmed? And he said, absolutely. But he said, make no mistake about it. This entire family and all of these children, we will confirm them. We will baptize the infant, everything today. But these are Latin rite children. Yeah. Regardless of, of what's taking place right, here today. Because you're receiving the sacraments and you're right. doing it under some necessity, in this case, the availability of, mm-hmm. of Latin rite clergy. Yeah. 833 288 EWTN is our toll free number. 833 288 3986. Julian says when Christ institutes the sacrament of penance, what does it mean when he says, whoever's sins you retain are retained? It is hopefully a unique situation. I don't know how uh, common it is, not being a priest. But the priest has to make a judgment in the confessional whether you're sincere. And he can do that based on what you say or maybe your demeanor or manner that suggests inauthenticity. Um, you can conceive of situations where, you know, maybe somebody goes to confession because they, they need to demonstrate to some other person that they're practicing the faith and they're really not intending to do it. Or they're not sincere and they're just, you know, sort of uh, in individually and they're just trying to, you know, sort of keep up the, the appearances of that for whatever reason. Or they're simply not sorry, you know. You know, such such a person mistreated me, and I'm never going to forgive them. So the language can betray that, and the demeanor may be, betray that. So what it means is that occasionally a priest may have to withhold absolution, saying, well, I can't absolve you because you're clearly not really sorry for your sins. That's what is being referred to here. Now, I'm sure priests have their stratagems for trying to work that person around and to keep them in the confessional and try to wear them down and show them what they need to do. And I remember Leopold Mandic when Pope John Paul II, he chose him uh, back in the Synod and Penance and Reconciliation in the 90s, I think it was, and the Pope wrote a... uh, an apostolic exhortation about it, and he made Saint Leopold one of the one of the patron saints of the sacrament, and he did that because he spent incredibly long hours, like Padre Pio as well, you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hours a day in the confessional. But he made an odd statement, I guess, that his confreres wrote down, and when his canonization came up, and this was in I think early twentieth century priest. I'm not exactly sure when he lived. But around that time, he said that in all the years, remember, here's a man, 15, 16, 17 hours a day in the confession. In all of the confessions he heard, he only refused absolution five times. In other words, he did everything possible. 
not to perjure himself, not to change the conditions of repentance necessary, but everything he could by conjoling and praying, praying to convince the person, and only in five cases in his, in his priestly life did he fail to do that. Every priest should perhaps want not to use the power of retaining, of not absolving as strongly as he did. And I think that's one of the reasons the Pope picked him as an example to confessors and a patron saint of that. Uh, his zeal to not have to exercise the power to say, you're not forgiven, I cannot absolve you until you're truly sorry. But that's the condition that's uh, necessary. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We still have time for your calls at 833-288-3986. We head next to the Republic of Texas. Hope is listening on St. Valentine Radio today. Hope, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Yes. Um, my question is, uh, well, I must say, I, I just need some feedback um, I started last year, uh, I got in late on the RCI, mm-hmm. uh, becoming Catholic, and uh, I had listened uh, to y'all's radio station for several years and, mm-hmm. and, and listened to the Mass and everything, and I mean, when I was 12 years old, I wanted to become a nun and be Catholic, and, and it just has always drawn me to that. Well, I started that process, and I have health problems that kept me from attending at the times, and all that was supposed to have been worked out. Well... Uh, in March, we'll uh, come to find out the the priest and the the director of the program weren't on the same page about it, and and I could sort of tell the the priest didn't really uh, he felt like that I was a problem child, so to speak, and because I do have a lot of issues because I was uh, the situation I was brought up in was very abusive and uh, demeaning, and I was the scapegoat and blamed for everything, and I didn't even understand about start understanding about God's grace until about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, you know, I've had a friend that dumped me from being a friend because she said that the reason that I had all the problems I had with the finances and health and everything else was because I didn't make the right decisions and that that was God's punishment. And, and that's what I had to deal with because I didn't make the right decisions. So my question is, is, how can I be responsible for not making the right decisions when I had no control over some of that stuff and some of the stuff I did have control over? I didn't have the the tools and with me to understand mm-hmm. what decisions, right decisions to make. Yeah, you... Very good question. Yeah. You've hit the nub of the problem, and that is... To be culpable, you have to know that something... Now, granted, there can be human decisions. Every decision has moral content. But many things in life, we don't see the moral content. We just know we have a practical decision to make. You know, I'm going to stay in this situation, or I'm going to leave, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. And we can't, first of all, we can't foresee the outcome, because unlike God, we don't have omniscience. We don't have... We can't see out into the future. We can't see the future. No creature sees the future except God, not our guardian angel, not the devil, nobody. Anybody who says that though they know infallibly what's going to happen if you do that, no, they know generally because maybe they know 10 people who did something and it didn't work out. 
On the moral level, however, if you don't know that it's something wrong, you're not morally responsible for it. Or if knowing something's wrong, you feel like you're, you're forced into it, there's always a, re, uh, a, a reduction of our moral guilt in those circumstances. God is not an ogre. He sees our hearts. He knows what we know. He knows what we're capable of. He knows why we sometimes don't do the things that maybe we ought to do, whether it's on a moral issue or maybe some practical choice in our life. And he never leaves us because of those things, because he wants us with him. And so I think here's what I would say. Two things, you've got some things to do in the church. Finding somebody who will give you good advice, for example, to get you on the path to reception in the church. The other thing would be to say every day, and you could do this by joining with us here on EWTN at um, are we on 4 o'clock Eastern Time or 3 o'clock? When is the chaplet on? Uh, the, in our, you're in Texas, so that's Central Time. I think it's 2, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right. it's that's on television. Yeah, on television yeah. or on the radio. Join in the, in the Chaplet of Divine Mercy because nothing will give you a deeper sense of God's mercy than saying that prayer. You can Google it on the Internet. You can see it on television. Look on our TV schedule on EWTN.com. Look on our, our, it'll be on the radio program schedule as well. And you can learn it by participating that way through TV or radio or on the Internet on our website, EWTN.com. Put in Chaplet of Mercy. We have all the prayers there. And this is to help, I think, invigorate you with the belief in God's divine mercy that he came down became incarnate precisely to give us mercy and that he wants to give it to you in particular, Hope, to you. And you have to open your heart to receive it and set aside the human voices that are not telling you stuff and judging you. No, you want to get right with God, they'll take care of themselves and he'll take care of them. So why don't you say that prayer and I think that's a good a good start to getting on the right path, and then try to find somebody who will give you a practical solution to your desire to come into the church. And there are ways to do it outside of RCIA, and many priests are willing to do that, to do a, pri a sort of a private preparation in that. Um, it often depends upon the norms in their particular diocese or whatever, but by exception, almost anything like that can be, can be provided for. So you, if, if maybe the parish you were dealing with was not the place, then maybe somewhere else. God bless you, Hope. We will keep you in our prayers. Uh, be sure to check out Divine Intimacy Radio Sunday morning, 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Dan and Stephanie Burke chat with Adam Bly this week about exorcisms, the devil, and the warning signs and preventions. Uh, that is Divine Intimacy Radio, Sunday morning, 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Angela in Denver, Colorado, listening on Catholic Radio Network. De Angela, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good. What's your question Great. today, um, sweetie? You know, well, I didn't have a question. I, I, I okay. called this and so what's your question? I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have a question. <laughs> I just wanted to chime in about what 
go into com- um, go into confession, mm-hmm. there was a time where I was told I cannot absolve you, and it blew my mind. It really did, and from not right away, but soon after, uh, it everything changed for my life, and I turned around a lot of things in my life, and I got out of the situation I was in. But it took that one priest mm-hmm. to tell me that, and it did scare me, and it was like, oh my gosh, you know, I've been in, it's the life all went on. You got to change life. So I just wanted to share that. No, and I th- thank you for calling in and saying that because you're a, you're an example of the reason that is. Because sometimes, you know, the church is, seems at times to be loath to use its disciplinary powers, and this would be it. It's not that any priest wants to withhold absolution, but it sees you do not have in the disposition within you uh, to. Uh, here I'm using a generic you, not you, Angela, in particular, but um, the disposition within to change. And they don't want the sacrament to be fraudulent, to be a lie, and to be a sacrilege. And so they say, no, come back. And uh, the stories of Padre Pio kicking, throwing people out, well, not physically, but saying, get out of here and come back when, because he knew what was their sins were, but throwing them out and saying, come back when you're ready to actually confess and be insincere. Uh, this is uh, this is why Christ gave them that power. Uh it's why he used discipline himself. He tried to reform the Pharisees for what good it did him largely by chastising them. But the church doesn't want to use those powers, but she does. And uh, with the grace of God, as they were, it was in your case, Angela, uh, very often I think it probably works better than most people know. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We could probably squeeze in another phone call at 833-288-3986. Mark would like to know, how do you respond to people who claim the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption are based in Gnosticism? I don't see how that can be, since the Church ran from Gnosticism like uh, you know, somebody with their pants on fire runs from a, from a fire-burning house. Uh, no, the church was extremely anti-Gnostic. Uh, it didn't accept the Gnostic writings. It didn't uh, uh, allow Gnostics to continue uh, as Catholics. In fact, they were trying to set themselves up as the true, you know, the true, true and perfect ones. In fact, they saw their their knowledge as being the the way of perfection, uh, and not a change of life as Christ really wants. So that came out organically, developed organically and logically and reasonably from the fact that if you simply think about what the Incarnation is, and if you believe that the Incarnation, what the Incarnation is, first of all, Gnostics didn't. They had all kinds of other explanations for that, as did you know, the Arians and the Historians and different for the Incarnation. But if you believe what the Incarnation is, then the reality of why Mary had to have been conceived without sin, in other words, being the first recipient of the grace of redemption, as the Pope taught when he proclaimed the Immaculate Conception, that by the foreseen merits of Our Lady, she was, in essence, saved from falling into the pit as opposed to being pulled out of the pit, as we sometimes hear it explained. And so she had to be. Otherwise, the incarnation would have occurred, you might say, if we are all 
you know, if we are all victims of the prince of this world, if we are all in his kingdom and Christ is coming to change that, then what's the, who's the first person he changed it with by preventing her from being a citizen of that kingdom? It was his own mother. So that the nature he received from her, that human material nature which we have, was perfect, as he is perfect. She was in all, all respects a human being, but she was the first of the redeemed. And this is why you often see her in that bride, bridal image of the church. Uh, Pope Francis declared her Mary, mother of the church, because in a sense, in the order of charity, in the spiritual order, uh, she and her son are in this great bond of charity from which the fruitfulness of it is the rest of us. The fruit of a marriage are the children well, the fruit of the spiritual union of charity between Christ and his mother, the fruit of that was, by the example under the cross, the beloved disciple. When Christ said to John, you know, you know, behold your mother, and to Mary, behold your son, he was, John was the icon of the beloved disciple. And we are all beloved disciples of God. We are all standing under the cross in John, in a sense, because he saw in John what we all ought to be, the faithful, innocent follower and disciple. But he saw that first in Our Lady, and that's why from all eternity the Father had chosen her to be the mother of the Word made flesh. In our final minute here, Jason said, Protestants claim that when Jesus said the law was not abolished but fulfilled in him, he was saying there was no longer any need for mediators between God and man. Is this true? No, because he established mediators. I mean, if he told, we were talking about confession earlier, uh, if he said to the apostles whose sins you forgive, whose sins you retain, uh, if he gave to them the power of the keys, which were uh, symbolically the, the powers of the... Uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, the Vizier, who actually did the management and administrative stuff for the king. If he did all of those, what is that but a mediation? It's a service in Christ's name to do the things for others that Christ wills be done for them. And so he gave them that power of mediation, and they continue it to this day. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again Monday. Until we get together then, have a great weekend and God bless.